our humanity is inseparable from the, the emotional being that God created us to be. And so that, as a creative professional, for me is this constant challenge of how do I reach people who don't have a religious worldview, certainly not a Christian worldview, but yet would still agree with me on these things if I'm able to present this in a way that makes sense. Welcome back to The Kevin Roberts Show. It is so great that you are tuning into this episode. I mean, for obvious reasons, but you know, the real reason to tune in is not because of me, it's in spite of me, it's because of the great guests we have. And this week's guest is someone that many of you will know. And if you happen to be one of the few people who don't know Ryan Bomberger, Chief Creative Officer of the Radiance Foundation, you're gonna love him by the end of this episode, probably just a few minutes in. What are we gonna talk about? Saving America, especially the soul of the nation. So, Ryan, my new friend. Hey. Welcome aboard. <laughs> it's great to be here with you. So, we're fellow Northern Virginians, uh, both have uh, similar-sized families, both homeschooling. Look forward to really getting to know you over the next many years. But most of all, we're grateful that you would take the time out of your very busy schedule to join us. So, hey, thank you. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So, I've already prepped you this for this off-camera. We, we usually start with, tell me your story. And, and I'll just sort of give our audience a little bit of a heads up. This story is pretty amazing. <laughs> uh, God is amazing. And I love that he allows my wife, Bethy, and I to use our own stories in order to just emphasize how triumph can rise from tragedy all the time. And so I am that 1% that's used 100% of the time to justify abortion. I'm one of the exceptions cases that even sometimes some pro-lifers have a hard time embracing, but certainly the pro-abortion side is always exploiting that 1%. My birth mom experienced the horror and the violence of rape, but she still courageously chose life. She gave me the gift of adoption. I was adopted into a tiny little typical American family of 15, and I have six brothers, six sisters, we had one and a half bathrooms. Think about that. Um, and, you know, I, you know, 10 out of the 13 kids were adopted. I was the first one adopted. And I love the fact that my parents, Henry and Andrea Bomberger, didn't fixate on how I came to be. They just focused on who I was meant to be. And so here I am, you know, once conceived in rape, but adopted in love. And that's why I'm really passionate about fighting for the most marginalized among the marginalized. And um, today I'm an adoptive dad. I have four awesome kiddos, two girls, two boys, and two of whom were also adopted. So when people ask, well, you're a guy, why do you care about adopt, uh, by, why do you care about abortion? How can I not care about the violence of abortion? I wouldn't be here. And when I speak on college campuses, I've been often told that I should have been aborted. Interesting thing to tell a guest lecture, I guess. But yeah, I mean, just go beyond the uh, the horror of that statement, but uh, also says something about just the utter lack of hospitality. Right. Uh, that that is really un-American. I mean, it right. used to be that someone could have pretty serious views or disagreements with with someone and still respect them, and certainly not say that. But it says a lot about the right. soul of the nation. Right. And the soul is hurting. The soul is broken. And, you know, being raised by Christian parents who love Jesus, and when you love Jesus, the natural outflow of that is loving people, you see things and hear things differently. So instead of reacting in kind to some of those folks who can't even repeat some of the things that, that I've been told, you know, Harvard or at Princeton or Columbia Law School, I have to constantly see through the breakthrough filter of Christ. And when, when we do that, you see situations differently and react differently. Because it's easy to kind of react, 
you know, I'm a little sarcastic just by nature. Oh, good. And it'd be easier to, <laughs> to kind we of only throw do some of stuff out. But I, I just see people as being created in the image of God. And I understand that there is brokenness, that there's spiritual brokenness. And so I have to respond differently. God bless your birth mom, obviously. Yeah. And God bless your adoptive parents. What was it before we get into some of the, the policy, some of the activism right. that you've engaged in, as well as your diagnosis of the activism against you, especially given your, your beautiful statement there? What was it like growing up in your your family of fifteen, a multiracial, as I understand, right. uh, at a time where there there had to be challenges as a result of that in America, right? Right. My family didn't look like most families in that area. Certainly not. You know, we were white, black white and black, I'm mixed as well. Native American, Vietnamese, able, disabled, you know, just not your, I joke when I say the typical American family, but we we kind of stood out. And because of some of those dynamics, because of, for instance, just the different colors of skin, my parents faced all kinds of racism outside of the family and actually a little bit within the family. In fact, my mom, who grew up, you know, in a trailer park, had an alcoholic father, had to be placed in a children's home for one year while her parents separated, knew that her father was broken in a lot of different ways, but throughout her life, she still tried to connect with him, and he was, he was involved with the original five Bombergers. You know, my parents had three biological children. I call them the homemade ones, whatever you want to call them. But <laughs> there was a connection, at least at that point. But the moment they talked about adopting me, he said, if you, and I'll clean this up, but he said, if you bring that black child into your home, you're going to ruin your family. And he never had anything to do with our family the rest of our lives. So my mom literally had to lose a father in order to gain a son. So those are some of the crazy dynamics. And it's the beautiful self-sacrifice that happens. You know, parents sacrifice all the time for their kids. But rarely do you think, oh, my word, I actually have to give up a family member in order to embrace another one. So I'm glad my parents rejected the naysayers who rejected people who said you had to be the same color to love a child, which is ridiculous. And so they, they loved all of us. They loved all of us equally, although I do think I was a favorite in the family. <laughs> but, um, you know, 13 children and our lives, the, the trajectory of our lives changed immensely because we were loved, changed immensely because we were this mixture, not just color mixture, but mixture of experiences, a diversity of experiences. Some of my siblings came from really horrific backgrounds. I mean, abuse and, and to see how love unleashed purpose in our lives to see how our faith changed our narratives, you know, these incredibly broken narratives, it's, it's a really powerful thing. And people saw that too in our community. So adoption didn't just change us individually, it changed the family, it changed the community, and we know uh, adoption sometimes literally changes the world as well. And it seems as if it's already evident in, in this initial part of our conversation that your upbringing by your parents, obviously with your siblings, very faith-based, gave you a sense, A, of what truth is. But secondly, that part of living out truth is doing that in charity and love for others. And and, and it also strikes me that you're able to state the truth. Some of that truth, some people would say hurts right now. We'll talk about that as it relates to gender ideology, race. But also, as you were saying in response to protesters on these seemingly esteemed colleges right. <laughs> that that uh, you, 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 we have to respond to them in kindness and in love to the extent that we can because it, it's ultimately about revealing capital T truth to them and not stooping to that level. Right. And that's, that's the thing, too. Part of what we do through the Reigns Foundation is emphasize that 
we are called, especially as Christians, we're called to love every human being, but not love every human doing. And when you understand that, you can differentiate the two. It's much easier to then craft things that actually speak the truth in different ways. I'm a creative professional. I've been one for, for many, many years, which is why I'm the chief creative officer of the Radiance Foundation. But it's a challenge to figure out these culture-shaping issues. How do you frame them? How do you, how do you convey these sometimes really difficult and complex things in ways that, that resonate with people, in ways that, that elevate the truth, and still show a, a, loving, <laughs> a loving sort of perspective on these things? It's not an easy challenge. But when I, I invite, I, I like it. I like the challenge. I can tell that by the smile on your face, just in case someone's listening and not watching. It's it's very genuine. I, I want to get into the advice that you have for all of us about that. But first, just want to talk about one link, and that is the link between your upbringing, which seems so positive, to your decision professionally to get into creative work. I mean, what, what made you realize that? And in particular, I, I can only presume that you thought doing that kind of professional work would be your way of telling your story, of of telling truth. Right. Well, I have to credit my big brother, Todd, for introducing me or teaching me how to make bubble letters. I know it sounds ridiculous. And <laughs> Making maybe bubble simple. letters. Yes, bubble letters. He's the one who first taught me that. And I will say that I, I love, I always love design. I always loved just a different way of saying something or conveying something. So that started off at a young age to where in high school I would make all the posters for all the major events in school to doing all kinds of sound design back then when I didn't, you know, I remember going from like one boom box to the next and duplicating vocals. And cause I do a lot of, I ended up doing radio jingles later on, but I, there's something about design. There's something about that kind of creativity. And I think about the creator and how we only have a fraction <laughs> of what he has. It's, it's kind of it's an awesome pursuit to figure out okay how can i move people's hearts with design with words i also have to credit my mom because my mom was a voracious reader which is why i became one but she loved just the power of words and just wordsmithing things so that it would just feel and sound different to somebody and from that i ended up pursuing that that whole realm and it's an interesting it's an interesting field because there's a lot of there's a lot of design that pulls people into confusion and chaos and i love just creating something that actually reminds people of who they are reminds them of the the god-given purpose that they have and with all the culture shaping issues that we're dealing with today and the surreal nature of our society i don't know if you noticed that that everything is even more, more and more surreal every day it is such a challenge, but such a welcome one to figure out how can I speak to someone's heart and mind who does not think like me. So I want to eventually get into the specific work of the Radiance Foundation. And, and as this audience has come to expect, we'll talk about some ways they can be involved. But you also know that as a historian, I can only move chronologically. You've probably picked up on that. And so I'm, I'm curious what your diagnosis of America is, and in particular, your diagnosis of the soul of the country. <sighs> I worked with young people for a long time. I worked with young people, actually even in high school, I worked with those who had some mental disabilities. I actually have God brothers and God sisters with Down syndrome. 
some of my family have certain disabilities, always had a heart for the young and noticing over the years just how much of our culture is changing and how many of them are being lost to the prevailing culture that says, well, we can't really know who we are. And the hopelessness that follows that. I mean, we've seen such an exponential change, such a drastic change in our culture where just the denial of God, for instance, and when you deny God, you, you deny design. And when you deny design, it doesn't go well. I mean, on every level, it doesn't go well. And so as someone who's, who's worked with young people and understanding that structure is a beautiful thing, as, as a creative, I'm saying that, structure is a beautiful thing, but it also allows there to be flourishing when there is structure. But when it's nothing but upheaval, then there's confusion, there's despair, there's hopelessness. And I see so much of that. Just even in the last five to 10 years, I never would have thought we would be facing the things that we're facing. You know, a Supreme Court justice, for instance, being unwilling to actually say what a woman is. Whoever would have thought. But that's where our culture is going. And a large part of that is due to a, a lack of a biblical worldview, a lack of the embrace of common sense. Obviously, education or the lack thereof or miseducation, probably put more accurately, right. plays a big role in that. Do you think that's the prevailing factor? Well, I think it's a multifaceted factor, but the prevailing factor, probably yes. I mean, when public schools have, what, upwards of 45 million to 54 million students, and they, they possess the majority of time with those kids, I mean, more time than churches, for instance, more ch time than even sometimes face-to-face -face family interaction, the, the amount of ideology, the toxic ideology that is, that is passed off to these kids is really unbelievable. And so that's why I do think we're seeing a massive cultural shift because you've got, you know, a captive audience for what, five, seven hours a day and five days a week at least. And that, that definitely le leads to... Um, a massive shift in what we're seeing. Young people who are denying some of the most basic things, the things that we thought were kind of solidified. You know, for instance, at the civil rights era in the 60s, thinking that, okay, well, content of character is far more important than the color of your skin. But now it's the complete reversal of that. And public schools are pushing this through critical race theory, um, through this bogus anti-racism movement. And so, yeah, I do think they would... I think it's simultaneous, though. It's public school and it's the capitulation of churches to allowing broken social movements to lead the way instead of a, a biblical worldview to illuminate the way. And unfortunately, I think part of this, this broader social cultural diagnosis, which is kind of a diagnosis too about or a critique really of our, our decaying institutions, mm -hmm. whether they be the nuclear family, churches, it seems as if each month, if not each week, there's another American church, another denomination or congregation that has capitulated to that agenda. What's what's the answer to that? I mean, and by that, Ryan, I mean, like at the level of those particular congregations when these decisions are being made. Well, the answer is for the remnant to never let go of, of pursuing a, a biblical perspective on all things. And... And of course, that's what love is. We, we can live in a culture that says love, love is love, but 
God is love. You don't define a word with the word. You know that as an elementary school student. But you have so many churches, like you said, that are completely caving in on all of these issues. Part of it is that so many people aren't even bothering to take the initiative to understand the issues. That's why, like my shirt says, less activism, more factivism. And that goes for church folk. I mean, emotions don't set us free. And we got lots of activists out there, lots of activists who are acting simply out of just an emotional response, you know, this this sort of visceral sort of response to things. But we have to actually know the context to issues because context brings clarity and clarity brings responsible action. And so for church folk, for Christians, for people who call themselves Christians who abandon just some just basic foundational biblical principles, many times it's because they don't even actually understand any of the context. And that's heartbreaking. I mean, George Barna, who does studies out of what is Arizona Christian University, mm-hmm. says 4% of Americans, only 4%, have a biblical worldview. Oh, my goodness. Well, that explains why there's so much turmoil everywhere you turn. These decaying institutions, well, that's because we've allowed our faith in what is a constant, you know, biblical truths that are constant, uh, we've allowed that to, to decay in our own personal lives and certainly collectively as a society. Have you, because you have so many conversations around the, the country, a lot of presentations and talks, and you visit with a lot of people from different walks of life. Have you gleaned from others or you yourself discovered anything successful when it comes to connecting with the religiously unaffiliated? And, and, and that's very much on my mind because doing a lot of research and thinking and writing myself at Heritage, we're doing this too, about how we we arrest that that trajectory of religiously unaffiliated people who are otherwise right-minded, if, if I may say that, in terms of politics and economics and so on, perhaps even the culture, getting them back into the fold, uh, literally when that comes to, to religious thinking. Have you discovered any success in, in how we message to them? Well, we live in a culture that loves, and our culture, humankind has always loved stories, storytelling, and really good storytelling. Here comes the creative. Yeah, well, <laughs> and I think at times, you know, conservatives and or Christians, because sometimes it's not one and the same, are really bad overall at telling these stories, much better over the past few years. And part of that, I think, is what enables that draw back to the fold, if you will, in talking about these stories, in in connecting things together. Like, for instance, my fight against abortion also involves talking about fatherlessness and the impact of that, the impact of poverty, the impact of the deterioration of family and what leaves a child vulnerable and every community vulnerable. And it's amazing on college campuses, even though I get get a little bit of hate from some folks, I also get a whole lot of, I mean, there are times when students will come up to me and say, and these are kids, you know, I'm an atheist, and I really wanted to hate you when you came in, <laughs> but you really presented some good arguments, and your story, your story is so powerful. And so that's that's part of the way of, of pulling people in through the personal story. And for me, it's trying to figure out how do I fuse together the emotional and the evidential? Because that's what people are looking for. They're looking for evidence of what is true. And they don't want just a list of facts. You know, even though I'm a factivist, I also understand that that our humanity is inseparable from the the emotional being that God created us to be. And so that, as a creative professional, for me, is this 
constant challenge of how do I reach people who don't have a, a religious worldview, certainly not a Christian worldview, but yet would still agree with me on these things if I'm able to present this in a way that makes sense to them. And a lot of it is just mere comportment. You know, it's it's the manner by which we go about talking to people. Right. And I can tell just sitting with you and, and being familiar with your work that you're you're also a model for that. So tell us about right. your work at the I mean that. Uh, it's it's a very heartfelt compliment because as we we sit here and record this on Capitol Hill, which is known as Heritage's Lane, you know, the the hard work of policy. And we're very happy, very cheerful with the work that we do. We care as much about the lane that you're in, and we're very active in that, which is society and culture, and as I like to say, real people, you know, people outside the Beltway. All of that to say, uh, tell us about the work that you're doing at Radiance along those lines. My wife, Bethany, and I founded the Radiance Foundation back in 2009. So this is our 14th year and honestly, we had <laughs> we had no idea really what we're getting into. See, my wife is a teacher by profession. She taught in both public and private schools for 13 years. Her last three years were in inner city Philly at a middle school there. And now she's been a homeschooling teacher for 17 years. And sometimes <laughs> longs for the riot lockdown days way back when. But as a creative professional, as an educator, we try to figure out how do we tackle these culture-shaping issues? How do we equip people to engage in these conversations that they're so fearful of engaging in? Because we don't, sometimes just don't know how to talk about them. So we started the Radiance Foundation to illuminate, educate, and motivate, to illuminate that every human life has God-given purpose, whether you're planned, unplanned, able, disabled, doesn't matter. Your life has, has purpose. We want to educate people about a myriad of these, these inextricably tied together issues and then we want to motivate people to take that knowledge and that faith and put it into action and so 14 years ago we started my wife had left the the teaching world to raise our first daughter um, ray ray and you know we stepped out of the boat and for those who know understand you know peter could have stayed in the boat instead of stepping out onto the water and he could have, you know, as my brother-in-law puts it, he could have gotten the Golden Bucket Award and stayed in the boat and kept, you know, <laughs> getting the water out. But no, instead, stepping out. And we did that. And it was next to salvation, next to marrying my wife, my favorite person on the planet, next to having our four children, best decision that we've ever made. And since then, we've been able to speak probably 60 times a year in different venues around the nation and abroad on all of these culture-shaping issues. We've helped raise millions for pregnancy centers and maternity homes. We've been huge advocates for adoption because we're kind of biased toward adoption, you know, being an adoptee and adoptive father. In fact, we actually have a fund called the Adopted and Loved Fund, which is actually, it's the Henry and Andrea Bomberger Adopted and Loved Fund, named after my late father, who passed away in 2021 at the height of COVID. Mm and the most pro-life man I've ever known. Clearly. I mean, yeah, clearly. Uh, you know, the people who love that bumper sticker mantra, pro-lifers don't care about people after they're born. That is the that is the biggest bunch of nonsense. I mean, I think adopting 10 children is caring for people after they're born. And they just you, needed to meet Henry Bumberger. Well, I wish they, I wish they could have. Um, my parents are two unassuming people. They weren't political people. They just lived out their faith. 
they lived out their their biblical worldview and so we try to do that through the radiance foundation and it's amazing we do it through videos we do it through weekly op-eds you know right for christian post and for town hall and other news outlets we do it through compassionate community outreaches like our adopted and loved fund and our sally's lambs outreach which is the outreach to birth moms who choose adoption over abortion because birth parents are typically the forgotten part of an adoption triad and then we do it through these creative ad campaigns you know billboard campaigns where we've placed probably now 750 plus billboards in major cities across the country that <laughs> just talk about the the violence uh, of abortion and the incredible resources that are available to those facing the unplanned what's the reaction to those been well when we started, when we were based in Atlanta, that's where the Radiance Foundation was was born. And it was an interesting, I mean, you learn things really quickly when you run a nonprofit, particularly if it's a faith-based nonprofit. But we started, our first campaign was about 65, 70 billboards. We partnered with Georgia Right to Life, who actually paid for all the billboards. I did the design. And the billboard said, black children are an endangered species, too many aborted.com. And it was dealing with the whole Endangered Species Act of 73. So one branch of government allowed the protection of animal life. And then another branch of government decided that, well, human life doesn't have to be protected. And it was a bizarre contrast. So we highlighted the history of eugenics of Planned Parenthood and the pr past and present racism that, that hasn't changed. And so when we placed these billboards up, we were just, it was a media firestorm. New York Times, I mean, CNN, MSNBC, the list went on and on, just massively covered campaign. And I remember being contacted by New York Times by a journalist. And in fact, they wrote two articles on our campaign. And she was saying, well, you're talking about the disproportionate impact in the black community where abortion rates are sometimes up to five times higher. And she goes, these numbers just seem outrageous. I mean, where are you getting these numbers from? It sounds so conspiratorial. And I said, it's from the CDC. So <laughs> you can go to the abortion surveillance reports and see these. You can go to New York you know, Department of Health, New York City Department of Health, and find these numbers yourself. But we were maligned. We were called racist. We, NPR did a piece on me on all things considered which I think is funny because apparently the things that they considered weren't the person, wasn't the person that they were interviewing. But for 45 minutes, they interviewed me about this campaign. And then when the piece comes out, three and a half minutes, I'm nowhere in the piece, which was about our campaign. They don't mention me at all, but they had three pro-abortion perspectives and one, one of our colleagues, one pro-life perspective, which that's why I call NPR National Pro-Choice Radio, but or pro-abortion radio. But I, we learned really quickly just how fake news could be. So the reaction to our campaigns was varied. We get lots of love from people saying, oh my word, thank you for finally saying this. Thank you for calling out Planned Parenthood. But when we did one billboard campaign in the San Francisco Bay Area, you know how conservative that area is, um, we, we were just, we were denounced by the ACLU, which felt great, because if you're gonna be denounced you right by the ACLU, target. you're doing something right. We were denounced by Planned Parenthood, which was expected, denounced by pro-abortion politicians, but then we were denounced by the NAACP, which I grew up revering the NAACP for many reasons, for many great reasons. And I thought, how are they denouncing us? They called our campaign horribly racist. It was a billboard that said, black and beautiful, too many aborted.com. Of course, one is too many. And so I thought, this doesn't make any sense. Why aren't they on our side? And as I did research, I found out that they actually stand in solidarity with Planned Parenthood, that they had resolutions supporting the radical 
position of abortion, supporting abortion through the entire pregnancy. So I wrote an article and I called it, <laughs> called them out. So I called them the National Association for the Abortion of Colored People. Let's just say they didn't like the title. They didn't like me. And so they sued me. Two years in federal court, they sued a brown guy, hello, for exercising one of my most basic civil rights, free speech. And thanks to Alliance Defending Freedom, a case that we never thought would even go to court and did. We lost at the first level, first federal level, but then we appealed it and we were victorious on that appeal. So well, it was insane and surreal. I was just about to say how surreal. Yeah. Uh, considering the organization, and and yet the facts are what the facts are. They're right. they're a, a terrible example, actually, of the the reality of some organizations' missions not exactly being what meets the eye. Right. But uh, thank goodness for Alliance Defending Freedom, right? Oh yes. I, I there's so many reasons why I, I love ADF, but they. I mean, within an hour's time of reaching out to them when we got our de- uh, cease and desist letter. Because it was uh, Steve Aiden at the time who was at ADF. And he said, if you ever need us, just just email me, just call me. And sure enough, within an hour's time, they said, we'll help you out. Yeah, and, that's, and they did. <laughs> and that's the mentality that like-minded people have to have about uh, the so-called culture wars. Yeah. So let's, let's cover one topic before we talk about your new book right. that I think for a lot of Americans across the political spectrum is the most difficult. And that's race. Yes. And and for reasons mm-hmm. that are obvious and not obvious, you are very articulate about this. And so give us give us some pointers about the reality of things and also for those of us who want to broaden the movement, the the, the broad movement of common sense people right. who want to look they want to aspire to an America that's at its best on race, on common sense, on truth. What's your advice for us? Well, when you grow up in a family with so many different ethnicities and so many different colors, so many different experiences, it changes the way that you see things. So I have a different filter through which I see see life. You know, when you grow up in a family as diverse as ours is, I mean, we hear the word diversity all the time, but the people who mainly use the word diversity don't actually mean diversity. But one of the most powerful things I learned growing up in the, the Bomberger family was that we're one human race. That's an Act 1726 sort of thing. You know, we're from one blood. You know, this is, this is why, as someone who's also black and white, I feel like my heart is for reconciliation. And it's not to, to promote colorblindness. I know what people mean when they say that. Now, certainly the law should be colorblind, meaning it shouldn't uh, base things on the color of your skin. But some people say, and I know they mean well, well, when I see you, I don't think color. Well, See the color. God created color. He created for us okay to enjoy to and to celebrate, right? Yep. But don't presume to know anything about me because of my color. Mm. And and that's the thing that we're in in this culture where, you know, even critical race theory acknowledges that race is a human construct. And it is. It's a destructive one. You know, scientific racism, which um, Carl Linnaeus is the one who first separated us into different categories. And it was a perfect example of scientific racism, where it wasn't just here are some black people, here are some white people, here are people with light brown skin. He used, you know, pejoratives in front of, you know, like lazy Africans. I'm like, oh, okay, thank you, Carl. So understanding the, the root of that, even National Geographic says there's no basis in science for race. But yet here we are in 2023 still fixated by the hues of our skin and still separating ourselves by it. And critical race theory, even though it acknowledges that it's a human construct, still uses it to separate ourselves by it. And saying like someone like me, for instance, you know, black and brown people, 
that there's no such thing as absolute truth, that that it is our lived experience that is more valuable than some sort of absolute truth, which of course is bizarre. Lived experience is not synonymous with truth. And so when I was talking about churches earlier, many of them are caving into to this kind of thing where you elevate other people and elevate their lived experience above truth. And that should never be. You want to hear people's experiences absolutely, regardless of what color, beautiful color they are. But it does not, it, it doesn't replace truth, you know? And the whole thing about our lived experience is that it should point people to the truth. That's that's the hope. And it, it breaks my heart, you know, being married to a woman who's Greek and Italian, and our kids are all kinds of mix. I'm, you know, I'm Ukrainian, Nigerian, and Greek, British. I finally got my 23 and me. I know I probably shouldn't have done it because now... China this is, is not an endorsement by the Heritage no. Foundation, by oh, the way. I shouldn't have said it. No, no, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm picking on you. Please continue with your story. But I finally found out just recently all the things that comprise my, you know, my genetic makeup, and that was which is really fascinating, surprising. right? But that, all the more reason why it, it, these things are great and wonderful, but it still goes back to the fact that we are one human race, and when we approach life that way, things will be so. If we were to approach things that way, things would be radically different. And that's still my push today. We can, we can appreciate these different ethnicities, appreciate our different experiences. But my gosh, when we start categorizing ourselves and separating ourselves, it never, ever goes well. Look at history. Never went well. Um, not, not a single time. Never. I mean, th this is not an exaggeration. No. no, there's no hyperbole in that at all. And we're going back to, you know, separate race uh, graduation ceremonies, for instance, self-segregation, that, that's destructive. And so that's why part of what we do through the Radiance Foundation is address this. We have a, a site, onehumanrace.love, and we talk about this. We create content to actually address the insanity of continuing to separate ourselves instead of celebrating ourselves. So as, as someone with four children who are also very mixed, my, it breaks my heart that they're being forced to identify by color. There is there is far better identity than color, than any other superficial attribute. And that's why I, I emphasize to my children, when your identity is in Christ, it won't be uprooted by everything else. And so we see this in our society. I mean, you have people who are in you know, uh, constant you know, flux with, for instance, LGBTQIA++++ because there isn't there isn't any kind of foundation that that keeps them moored that it's a constantly changing thing and that's why with my kids i want them to understand that their color is beautiful and all something being male and being female that's great too but there is a there is an identity that is constant and that is eternal and we have a society that really has been kind of uprooted from all of that and so that's why there is all this chaos and this confusion and it's heartbreaking as a father because i kind of see a lot of life as a father you know i had a dad who helped us see things differently um, because he loved us so much because he loved the lord so much and that's why i see all these issues not just as a fellow you know as, as a colleague or as a friend or as a, a researcher but i see it as a father someone who whose heart is to try to bring healing and wholeness to a situation what a wonderfully eloquent response. Thank you for that. So a couple of final questions, although we'll have to have you back okay. over the years. This is a lot of fun. And that is you have a new book. Tell us about it. 
Well, whoever would have thought that. <laughs> does, does this surprise your siblings? Um, does does it wait? Does, having a I, book. Having a book? Yeah. No. I, I think my siblings are no longer surprised by anything that I do. I okay. love my siblings. I wouldn't be who I am without all my 12 siblings. Although I will say there are times during our younger years where there was a possibility that one sibling may have expired earlier. <laughs> I'm just saying there are a few fights. But I, I love that. I am who I am. I love that I'm able to creatively express that, that my wife and I get to work together 24-7. And this new book, She is She, which is insane to think that that's a controversial statement to say she is she, that we even have to emphasize this. But here we are. I mean, we, we live in Loudoun County, Virginia, which is you know ground zero for school boards going wild. And I've been involved in school board meetings where we're, we're saying to these illustrious individuals serving on the board. Why are you confusing the most basic identity? You know, so we wrote She Is She, which is a children's book meant for ages two to eight, but quite honestly, adults can learn something from it. It's it's adorably illustrated by our wonderful friend, Ed Kaler, but it really illuminates undeniable, biological, beautiful her celebrates femininity and what it means to be a mother and all the incredible things that women can do. And so we, we wrote this to kind of be an answer to the toxic ideology that is happening, to the LGBT patriarchy that patriarchy that is happening right now, where girls are being displaced and replaced by guys. I mean, did women's rights, you know, fight for a century, well, for centuries, you could say, you know, pave the way, women's rights pave the way for this and that, but did it pave the way for LGBT rights to steamroll over them? So even though the book is not political at all, it is a great reminder of some basic truths. In fact, people can get it at sheishe.com. And I want to emphasize too, on that website, the book is meant for children, but on the website, there are great uh, resources for adults and teens to dig deeper into this gender radicalism, uh, things that are, aren't appropriate for children, but the book is entirely. But this allows adults to say, wait a minute, how can I talk about this with my child? How can I talk about this with you know, my youth group? How can I talk about this with extended family members? Um, and, and we just you know, equip them to know how to think through these things or medical resources, apologetics resources, personal stories of detransitioners. But who would have thought in 2023, if we had written this 10 years ago, people would have been like, why are you saying that she, we know that she is she, but apparently we don't know that anymore. That, that's how quickly things have changed. Right. That, that's how quickly the radical left has moved. Have you had any success getting the book into libraries? Like well, public libraries, school libraries? Now the book has just recently come out, so we are working on that, but we have found resistance um, to not only to this book, but to our first book, Pro-Life Kids, that all of a sudden when we, we talked and we, we would call these libraries and say, hey, um, What's the process for getting a book in it? Oh, and you're a local artist? Oh, that's great. But then when we brought the book in, they're like, oh, wait, 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 wait. Um, well, there is a process and there's a procedure. And then we, we were told that out of a number of like 10 um, central or connected libraries, that the book could only go into three of them. Well, why is that? But we're just beginning with She is She. So we're encouraging people. In fact, you know, we have a program called Put It on the Shelf where they can buy one book, get one free, put the free book in your library, donate to your library. Um, because they'll give you all kinds of resistance to their purchasing procedures. But this is not, you know, this is not surprising. I mean, you've got drag queen story hours, but you can't have people 
and we're getting ready to do this to have a she is she story hour. So we'll see how that works. Good. Out. We're going to help you with all of that okay. at Heritage, and, and I personally and my family will. So thank you awesome. for that. Last question, which I ask every guest, uh, you you just exude hopefulness. So I think this is going to be pretty easy for you. And that is in spite of all the reasons that people may be on the brink of despair in America. And, and some of them are legitimate reasons for concern. We, of course, would caution against despair. Why did you wake up this morning hopeful about the American future? Because I know the author of hope. <laughs> that makes a difference. And I know for those who perhaps aren't religious, like, okay, but that does make all the difference in the world. I am someone who was saved and rescued from demise because of two parents who love the Lord. And that's why I wake up with hope because I have seen people work through the, the craziest situations. You know, we're stronger than our circumstances. And so it feels like we're outnumbered. It feels like we're, I mean, especially because of social media, news media, that they amplify the left, they amplify the lost. But there are so many others who think like us and who operate like us and who love and, and serve compassionately like us. And that's why I'm hopeful every day I wake up. I get to travel all around the United States and I see the most remarkable people working through the hardest of circumstances and, and rising above. How can I not wake up with the thought that we can do this? Ron Bomberger, thanks for what you're doing. Thanks for joining me. We look forward to having you back. Thank you so much. I told you you would enjoy this episode of The Kevin Roberts Show. Thanks for tuning in. We will see you next time with more hopefulness for the American future. Take care. The Kevin Roberts Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producer is Crystal Kate Bonham. The producer is Phil Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.